morning, when we look at this passage now, we're going to be looking at from Matthew 7, verses 13 to 23. We're going to be looking at, at, at finding ways to be motivated to stay on the right road, to stay alert to where we're headed and what's going on, and to stay sincere in our discipleship. And really, the Sermon on the Mount is about, it's about healthy discipleship. You could say it in many ways. Of course, it's about a healthy relationship with God. It's about a healthy relationship with one another. But it's about how to be a disciple. And so this is a lot of what we're seeing here in, in this passage, in this section. Now, just I wanted to set this in the context of the rest of Matthew 7. And the bits we're not covering about not judging others. So he says at the beginning of the chapter, don't judge or you'll be judged. And then he says, make a judgment. This is a very interesting thing, because in verse 6 he says, don't give to dogs what is sacred, don't throw your pearls to pigs. So actually Jesus is making a judgment, and he's telling us to make a judgment. Because you've got to judge who the dogs are and the pigs are, and who not to give your pearls to, right? So he, when he's saying don't judge or you'll be judged, he's not saying you can't make a judgment. What he's saying is you can't be condemning. And that's a big difference for me. I prefer the word condemn to the word judge, in, in not saying that it's superior, because it helps me. I, I'm not as, um, because, because the word judge is a bit, uh, what's the right word? The word judge it can be quite negative, but it doesn't have to be negative. Whereas the word condemn is almost always negative. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think what Jesus is, Jesus is saying to us, he's, not, he's saying don't look at someone and condemn them. You don't have the right to do that. Only God has the right to ultimately condemn. Uh, but you need to make some judgments. And indeed, the rest of the chapter is about making healthy judgments about who are the, uh, which is the right road, which is the right gate. And with the false prophets we're going to talk about tonight, who are the false prophets and the true prophets? You've got to make a judgment on that, and you've got to make a judgment on, um, on what you're building on. I mean, there are lots of judgments to be made. So making a judgment, coming to a settled opinion about something is fine, but being condemning is not. I think that's the, uh, the big difference in this chapter, now the, oh, in this point. So then, then he goes on to talk about some things which are definitely this way or that way. It's black and white. And, Many things in theology and in scripture are not as black and white as we might think they are, but still there are things which are right and wrong. And this is one of those uh, passages which uh, I think the postmodernists really don't like, uh, because there is fact and there is right and there is wrong. And, and we see Jesus saying you have to choose this way or that way. So there are some things we must make a very definitive choice about, and having made that choice to become a disciple, we must hold on to those choices. And much of the rest of this chapter that we're looking at today is an outworking of verse 12 of chapter 7. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, that's such an important verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, what's going on uh, after this is uh, he's warning us as to what that would not look like. So if you're going to treat others as, as you would have them uh, treat you, uh, you must make some wise judgments. You mustn't go through the broad gate. Don't follow the crowd. Don't follow the false prophets. Don't think that just because you say, Lord, Lord, then everything's going to be fine. And don't think that just because you're building, and you, you're building and you're excited about building, that you're necessarily building on the right foundation. You've got to be thoughtful, mindful about these things. So that's some of the background to this chapter. Two things, two, three lots of two things. Two ways to start with. Two ways. Now in Jewish uh, ways of thinking then and even now, the idea of contrasting is a very powerful way of teaching. That's how they teach. It's a common way to teach. And um, this is what we have in this passage where Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate in verse 13. 
Wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So let's think about what, what this uh, might mean here. Um, Jeremiah 21, verse 8, going back to the Old Testament, has some similar ideas. Also in Deuteronomy, you see a lot of this. Tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. And Jesus, remember, he is the fulfillment of the law. He's saying, well, you've heard it said, the Lord said, choose this. Now that I am saying to you, you must make this choice. You've got to choose between life and death, the broad and the narrow roads and the wide gate and the narrow gate. And so Jesus is again claiming that he has the right to ask people to make those choices. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, as I was a year and a half ago, um, not only are the gates, many of the gates narrow, but uh, the streets are very narrow and high-sided. And it feels quite claustrophobic walking around uh, there in Jerusalem. That's Doug Jacobi in the blue uh, top, for those of you who know him. Uh, and, oh yeah, just to prove I was there. Uh, um, and so you've got um, the word wide uh, can also mean the word roomy here. So you're, uh, roomy is the gate. Uh, and when it says narrow, it was with a narrow gate, he's talking perhaps more about it being restricted, contrasting the popularity or availability of the two ways rather than the ease of traveling on them. The word uh, for the two words for narrow in verses 13 and 14, and one of them is libo, which has a connotation with the word, uh, with another word meaning oppressive. And so he's saying, take the oppressive road. And that's a word that's used in context with uh, persecution. And so it ties back to what he says in the Beatitudes about the fact that blessed are you when you're persecuted. You're blessed when you are being oppressed. When the, when the, when you, the fact you're having to walk this path, this unpopular path, this path uh, uh, as you walk down and you have not many companions and you're being persecuted and opposed, this is the blessed path. And so when he says that it's a narrow gate, he's saying it is a difficult gate. It's not just physically restricted. It is a hard place to go through. You will face persecution. Persecution and opposition is a major theme in Matthew, and I've given you some references in the notes there that you can look up uh, later. Now he says, few find it. Isn't that interesting? I mean, not, not very positive, I suppose, but many go through the right, um, go on the broad road, but only a few find life. Only a few go through the narrow gate. Let me remind you of uh, Luke 13, 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try and enter and will not be able to. It's not necessarily that the door is, they're too fat for the door. It's that it's too difficult a door. That's what I think he's saying. It's too, they just can't follow Jesus through this. It reminds us of when, uh, after he talks about the bread of life in Matthew 6, in, um, in, in John 6, as mm. many left him. Many of his disciples turned back. This teaching is too hard for us. Um, and then, but in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands because they're all praising God. Now hang on, first of all Jesus says not many are going to go through this road, and only a few find it. And then we see in Revelation that, well, a great multitude. Okay, so yeah, that's an interesting contrast here, right? So I think what it's saying is that at the end of time, there will be a huge multitude in heaven. It's just that within any particular group, or perhaps any particular generation, only a few will choose 
the narrow, oppressive, hard gate to walk through. Now multiply that one group or that one generation over hundreds of years, indeed thousands of years, and that total number who go through will be a great multitude. But within every group, it will be the minority, which is a sadness, but is a reality, because it is a difficult choice to make. And many of us have understood that and experienced that ourselves. It's a difficult choice to make and a difficult choice to stick with. That's what we see here. And so we need to go back to um, the promise uh, of uh, the uh, earlier in the chapter, verses 7 and 8, uh, that Jaime uh, talked about here on Sunday. Because what do we do if we want to get through that gate? We need to ask for it. We need to seek it. We need to knock and the door will be open. Now, here's an interesting uh, thought. Um, it's not so much that there's a crossroads here, I would say, um, and you've got to choose which way to go. There is that image in the Old Testament, cho choose the right path, these two paths. I think it's more that everybody's going through the broad, the big gate, and the, along the broad road, and it is easy to go along. Um, there's the, uh, what might be the world's widest road um, in Brazil somewhere. Um, I did see one on satellite pictures from China, which had 50 lanes. Um, so it might be even bigger than that one. But that's a very broad road. Now you can imagine, if you're on, in a car, you, I mean, you've got to keep going the same direction as everybody else, right? It's, it's not so much that you've got these two choices in front of you, it's that you have only really one choice, this broad road everybody's going down, and you can't even see the narrow gate. And I think the ask, seek, not a bit earlier, I think it's about the fact that if you're going with the crowd, you're going in the wrong direction. So you need to turn off and have a look for this narrow gate. Because he doesn't say, Jesus isn't saying you've got these two things in front of you. He's saying everybody's going down this broad road and through this wide gate. There is a narrow one, but you've got to go ask, seek, and knock. And I think he's, he's talking to his disciples, remember. Or perhaps disciples and, and potential disciples, because there's the crowd there as well. And I think what he's saying is you're liking what you're hearing. You're liking what you're seeing. Earlier in chapter 4, he's been healing so many people that people from all over Syria, the, the capitalists and Judea, are, are coming, flocking to him in Capernaum. I mean, it's an enormous area. His fame has grown so that huge numbers of people are coming. And that's why I think once those huge crowds have come, and he goes up in the mountain, we better have a chat about what this really means. And part of what this really means is you're not going the right way. I'm telling you, you're not going the right way. You don't even know which way to go, but it's very narrow, it's very difficult. And if you want it, you can have it, but you've got to ask so you can knock. You've got to trust that it's a good thing. That's why he talks about the father giving him bread, the son of bread rather than snake. But you've got to look for it. You've got to go for it. Uh, whilst we were in Jerusalem, we went to, we went to Bethlehem. This is not Jerusalem, this is Bethlehem. This is the entrance into the, uh, the church of the nativity there. And uh, this is Larry Clip, an old friend of ours. You remember Larry and Martha Clip from the early days in London. I'm trying to speak through this thing. It's a tiny little thing. And uh, you know, sometimes there's little entrances that you don't even know are there unless you look really close. He said, you've got to look for it. You can find it. You can have it. And I think the warning for us, as it is for anybody who would be a disciple, is that if all you can see is a wide gate, you need to reject it. And keep searching until you find the narrow one. Because that's the, stuff, the one that's ultimately safe. So one of the things to wrestle with, we don't have time now, but I'd like to ask us to think about, is how can we recognize when we are going with the flow? What are the trigger signs? What are the, what are the signs? What are the, um, what are the things that make us stop and take stock and say, hang on, 
It looks like I'm going with the crowd here. It may be the crowd in the world. It may be the crowd in a religious sense. When am I... And when we're going with the crowd, we're almost certainly going in the wrong direction. Instead, we need to be with Jesus. So, two uh, ways. Now, two trees. <coughs> Let's talk about... Oh. Two trees. Maybe. Two trees. Good fruit and bad fruit. Have you ever had a bit of fruit go bad in your fruit bowl? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's disgusting, isn't it? <laughs> and of course, all the fruit it touches also goes off. Two trees and two bits of fruit. Watch out for false prophets, he says in verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. So Jesus is warning about false prophets, which is quite interesting because he's only just starting. I mean, there aren't any false prophets at this point, right? I mean, it's only him in terms of this new movement and, and what he's establishing. And so a lot of people think this is an anachronism and say, well, this is put in later by Matthew when there were false prophets around. I think that's doing Jesus a disservice. I think he probably, I think he knew there was going to be false prophets. I don't think that was difficult for Jesus to know that. Anyway, he's talking about false prophets well in advance of the time when they would come. Of course, there were many false prophets in Old Testament times, and I've given you some references on the handout, you can look those up another time. And it didn't generally go well for false prophets, <laughs> shall we say. Um, if, if, if the people of the day didn't deal with them, God did. But Jesus says, this will happen even in my day. False prophets will come, and indeed, it didn't take very long. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, only a generation or so later. Nevertheless, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. That's the church of Thyatira. Didn't take long. And, you know, we need to bear that in mind because we might think, well, you know, we're all educated now and we have our Bibles and we're intelligent people, so we're fine. There's no guarantee that we're not going to be listening to teachers and people and our own head, a voice in our own head interpreting the Bible in an unhealthy and unhealthy way. We need to be sober about that. Indeed, the wolves came in very quickly. Wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Uh, Acts chapter 20, with um, uh, Paul warned about this, that the wolves are coming in. Someone amongst your own number, he says to the elders. He doesn't say this to a young Christian. He's talking to the elders. And he says, someone amongst you will be the ravenous wolves. I mean, that's sobering, isn't it? You, you, you could be a very mature Christian and end up being a wolf. I mean, that's a... I mean, I don't like preaching scary stuff particularly, although it preaches well, but I, I don't, it's easy to preach that, but I don't like that. I, I think, that, I mean, ultimately the gospel is good news, and I think the tone of almost all of our messages to one another and to the world must be positive, and it's good news. But now and again, we need to take stock of, we ourselves could be wolves. And it's not just, yeah, he could be a wolf, or she could be a wolf, but you could be a wolf. I could be a wolf. And not so well that not me because, you know, uh, you know, others, but not me. It, it could be you. Of course it could. It could be any of us. If Judas could be, could be who, who he was, then any of us could be somebody who ends up being like a wolf. All right, so I've got a question for you. How do we recognize the wolves? What do you think? How can we recognize the wolves? What are, what are things we should, we should look out for in ourselves as, much, as well as other people, would you say? 
How do we recognize the walls? From perhaps within our own number, but also beyond our borders as a fellowship, let's say. What do you think are the things we should be looking out for? Ready? I think it's this, what impact are you having on people? Okay, the impact on others. Great. Um, Tiffin? So by their fruit. Okay. So by their lives, I guess. And the way they live. Outcome of their lives. Yeah. Impact on others. Yeah. Impact. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Lifestyle. Lifestyle. Maybe not really adhering to the scriptures. Okay. Maybe some sort of false teachings. Okay. Yeah, not, not using the scriptures well, healthily, accurately. Presumably, I mean, it's the wolf and the sheep thing because the wolf attacks the sheep. Mm -hmm. So, in some way, I guess, if the flock are being attacked. It damages the flock. Mm -hmm. Okay. They steal in like, looking like a sheep, mm -hmm. but you realize after a while, they are a wolf. Mm. Anything else? Discuss more. I'll give you three thoughts. Uh, bad character, false teaching, and unhealthy influence are the ones that came to my mind. We can think we sort of said that, but I, I think that's that's what it is. A, ca a character that is not Christ-like, a character that does not reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Looking at Galatians 5 as an example, those things aren't there or not growing. False teaching, using the Bible incorrectly. Of course, there are some opinion areas, but over a period of time. Noticing that the use of the Bible is not uh, is not healthy, unhealthy influence on the group, uh, causing division. Um, what does Paul talk about when he talks about the false teachers and the so-called super apostles? They are dividing the church. So those who cause divisions uh, certainly are an unhealthy influence, unregenerated, untransformed character, not no fruits of the spirit, a lack of Christ likeness, not growing in faith, and not helping people around them to grow in faith. One of the things I've noticed about people I think have become wolves, uh, and I look back in my past, is that the people around them have lost faith rather than gained it. Mm. They may have gained what they thought was a, was a clever insight. Ooh, I didn't realize that. But did it help them grow in their faith? Mm. Well, no. And so one tends to see a focus on ideas, concepts, and insights, but not a transformed life. Mm. Now, of course, those can go together. But one tends to see one without the other. When it comes to false teachers, I would suggest. Mm -hmm. Jesus, it's interesting, does not specify. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say it'll be this teaching and this teaching and this teaching. He just says, you'll notice them by their fruit. So it's interesting that he doesn't focus on doctrinal issues. Mm -hmm. He focuses on the outcome of life. Uh, Hebrews, I didn't put this in the show notes, but it's just come to me as a result of something you said uh, to do. In Hebrews 13, what does it say about your leaders? I think it's verse 7. Remember your leaders, he was 13 and 7, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life, their way of life, and imitate their faith. Again, nothing there about, oh, you know, all your leaders that had the correct doctrine, they're the ones you should admire. Not in the least saying we shouldn't have correct doctrine, 
But it's just, it's just that it's interesting that Jesus doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the way of life, the outcome. And that fits so much with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not essentially doctrinal in the same way we might think about doctrine. They are doctrinal. But they're not the sort of thing where you say, okay, I must believe this, this, and this to be saved. Yeah. And yet, they are about how to be saved. In the sense that they are the, they are the outflow of someone with a, with a changed, a repentant heart. Because life changes there. So there's something going on, on there, I think, with that. Uh, keeping the wolves away. How do we keep the wolves away? We stay close to the shepherd. Uh, John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd, does not own the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So, those who stick around and help are the ones who can be pretty sure are not the wolves. And the ones connected with Jesus are the ones protected from the wolves. And I just say one little thing, um, which is connected to this, but a, a little tangential. I think it's really important, and this is my opinion, but I think it's really important that we learn about the best practices in Christendom from all kinds of sources. So, it's important we don't get too blinkered. It's important that we don't get too incestuous in that sense of just, you know, feeding ourselves with what we've always thought and what we've always understood and our ways of doing church. And it's important we don't get stuck in our own traditions to the point where they begin to blind us and deafen us to what Jesus might be teaching us and, and better ways to do things. I think it's really important. And so I read a lot. I know some of us do. I listen to a lot of different Christian type podcasts. I meet with other people from other denominations to talk and discuss. I'm in a unity group with a Baptist minister and two free church ministers in Watford. I meet with for breakfast every, uh, every uh, once a month on a Thursday morning. Um, I talk to my father a great deal, he's an Anglican priest. There's a lot we can, I went to the London School of Theology, which is a um, evangelical kind of Bible college. There's a lot of good things in there. And I think that's very important we do that. Yeah. And then there's the balance of that, which is that we don't swallow everything. Just because the person teaching it to us is a nice person, is persuasive, knows a lot about the Bible, or just what they're doing seems to be working. I mean, these could be superficial things. And they could easily be wolves and sheep's clothing. And so what I'm just saying, as we, before I move on to this last point, is, is again discernment. In Matthew 7, earlier on, is about discernment. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. I'm not saying any of these people are pigs. I don't... These are, these are, these are just peop, um, ideas. But uh, we need to be open-minded, but... And, open-minded but not accept everything. We need to uh, use our wisdom and the wisdom collectively we have in the congregation and the wisdom we have from God's Word and the wisdom from God's Spirit to help us discern what is true and what is not true and what is helpful and what is not helpful and what is healthy and what is not healthy. And that takes time. And I suppose part of what I'm saying here is that as we come up with ideas or hear about ideas from other places, we should evaluate them over a period of time rather than adopt them too quickly. Because adopting things too quickly without good consideration would mean that we are, we are already convinced this is right. And so I, I, I want to put this in a balanced way. Because I firmly believe in learning from other people. But I also firmly believe we must be careful about what we choose to adopt and agree with. So I hope that's kind of fair uh, and balanced in that way. Okay, so two ways and two trees and then two claims. Two claims. 
And if you can't read that, I'll read it for you, but I rather liked it. There's a chap on the phone saying, just calling to remind you that I know you in real life, so your Facebook posts aren't fooling anyone. <laughs> uh, we can put up a front, right? You can make yourself look good on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram. You can look good. But what the real substance is, the people you live with really know. Um, and this is about Jesus here, where these people who come to him, they say, Lord, Lord. He says, but they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. They, they all say, did we prophesy in your name, perform many miracles. And he will say, I never knew you. Away from me. You darkness. Away from me, you darkness. Okay. You, away from me, you evildoers. I mean, this is strong language. Very strong language, and they're calling him Lord, Lord. So just to be brief here, and then at the end, what, is this, what are we talking about here? Uh, Kyrios is the, uh, is the word there in the Greek from which the, the Lord it comes from. It can just mean sir, or it can mean Lord in a more um, profound sense, uh, denoting authority, which probably it does here. So they're claiming to be authentic disciples. You're our Lord. Yes, Jesus. And he says, I, I know, you're not coming in. What could be going on here? What's actually happening? Because they seem to be active in their discipleship. They seem to be doing good things, um, it appears. So let me give you a few possibilities. It could be that they know um, other commands they should be following, but are not doing it. A bit like the rich ruler. They wanted to follow Jesus, but I uh, didn't want to sell everything. So maybe they're like that. They, they say, yes, I'll follow, but there's something they're not going to deal with. Or maybe they're like the other people who said, I uh, guess I'll follow you, but first let me go and um, look at the field or bury my father. So they've got their own, they're doing it on their own terms. Maybe that's what's uh, going on. Or another possibility is that um, they've chosen what they consider to be the most important commands of Jesus and are not doing the other ones. And they're probably the ones they like. So they're like, miracles, great, let's do miracles in Jesus' name. That's awesome. That'll be fun. And maybe they do, I'll prof uh, prophesy. Yeah, prophesy. Okay, I, that's great. Let's prophesy. And so maybe they're prophesying and doing the miracles because they like those. But maybe there's forgiving their enemies. And maybe there's being at peace during persecution. And maybe there's being merciful to people they don't want to do. And Jesus is saying, you missed the point. It's not about doing this and this. It's about a change of heart. So there's something else uh, going on there. And I'll give you some extra notes for that. I think um, what we're... What we're seeing here um, is the words are meaningless, really. Words are meaningless, aren't they? On their own. Now, words are meaningful if they are connected with what's true in the heart and in the life. But words on, the, on their own are meaningless. Making a claim of discipleship on our own terms is simply pride. I detect, though I don't use the word, that there's a lot of pride in these people. Otherwise, why would Jesus be so hard on them and say, you're not entering the kingdom and you're evil that's so strong. There has to be a real pride barrier there going on. The key issue, as he says, is it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, that's the struggle I have in my life. The struggle in my life is not really what to believe. The struggle is whether I'm really going to do the will of the Father. Am I going to be patient with that person? Am I going to be compassionate? Am I going to be merciful? Am I going to be a peacemaker? Am I going to have a pure heart and be loyal to Jesus? Am I going to hunger and seek I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness above all other things. Am I going to be content to be poor in spirit? I mean, th th this is the will of the Father and this is the challenge. Because this is every day. Every day I'm challenged about being merciful. I mean, as in I find it hard. I wish to condemn. I feel that. You know, every day I find it hard if I need to be a peacemaker, to be a peacemaker. Every day I find it hard to be pure, to be loyal. 
it's not, I don't know about you, but I, I find it's a daily challenge that we face. And so we must make a choice daily about these issues that we've talked about here. So uh, something for us to think about, perhaps to talk about in our family group settings. How could this warning apply to us? The warning that we're given here that Jesus says there will be those on that day, on the day of judgment, which is what that means, who will say, Lord, and he'll say, I don't know you. And he'll say, I did a lot of good things. And then Jesus will say, no, you didn't. You didn't really. Because you didn't do the will of the Father. You did stuff. The other people thought it was oppressive, but you didn't do what the Father wanted. So we need to figure out how we can guard ourselves against being in that situation. I don't think we need to be. I don't think we have to be or will be necessarily, but we need to be alert about it. Um, about these things. So, uh, wrap it up. Um, please, this is a plug asking you to pray for us. Uh, the Watford Church, we're doing a teaching day on the Beatitudes a week tomorrow. It's our biggest event we put on as a Watford Church, so we're very excited about it. Uh, so we're going to spend the whole morning talking about the Beatitudes, and please do pray for us. Um, the people are coming from all over the place, and uh, we've got registrations of names I have no idea who they are. So that's rather good. Um, they're there because they set the context, they set the culture, they set the heart in the right place. That's what it's really about there. It's about the heart. It's about the attitude. And then there's this other stuff, we'll, we'll work it through, we'll, we'll work it out. And I encourage you to, you know, this stuff's so meaty, I encourage you to take some time, whether it's tomorrow or Sunday or sometime next week or next weekend, just take an hour or two and just look back through your notes and ask yourself, in, in a prayerful spirit, Father, what do you want me to learn from this? If it's just one, Father, what, what it, why was this class taught for me? It's taught for all of us, but why was it taught for me? Ask yourself that question, pray about it, talk about it. Because I believe that we don't, we don't come up, this doesn't happen by chance, there's a reason. And there's something in what we've been learning for every single one of us here that has the power to transform us, to be more like Christ. And to be therefore effective at being but the salt of the earth and the light of the world, to be the city on the hill that Jesus has always dreamed that we can be. I hope that's helpful. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for being with me through this. And God bless you.